0: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have David Ewing Duncan. Uh, He's a best-selling author of many books and uh, he's got a lot going on. So when speaking to him about his bio, um, I realized if I give the bio, I'll probably screw it up. The bio is so expansive and covers so many cool things that it's better to let him give it. So uh, if you don't mind, David, thanks for coming. And uh, please give listeners the the portion of the bio that uh, would be relevant for them today. Hey, well thank you for having me. Um
1: yeah, well basically, you know, I'm a I'm a writer, author. Um I have started a couple of companies as well. Um but I've written 10 books, hard to believe. Um and the last one was called Talking to Robots: Tales from our Human and Robot Futures. Um but I've written books, adventure travel books, uh, I was a foreign correspondent, uh written about that and also write for WIRE and Vanity Fair and New York Times, places like that. So uh, I guess yeah. that's enough.
0: Okay. You're, 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 you're almost a ne'er-do-well, but not quite. Just kidding. But yeah, you're into a lot of things. It's <laughs> great. Oh,
1: no, I like ne'er-do-well. Yeah, that that could be my title, Chief, Chief <laughs> Ne'er-do-well Officer.
0: <laughs> well, let, let's talk about the uh, Talking to Robots book, you know, for a start that just came out. Um, what's the book about? And then, let you know, tell me why you decided to write about this, this topic.
1: Um, Talking to robots is really a culmination of me reporting on, um, you know, cutting edge technologies, mostly in the life science space, but also, you know, in the AI and robotics space. And it's it's partly about the technologies themselves, but it's really more about what these technologies mean for us as humans. So what I've done in talking to robots, um, I've taken 24 kind of robots or AI systems. Really, 20 areas of kind of human activity, and like a, and I've created a kind of kind of robot scenario around each one of them. And so we have a warrior bot, which would be like automated warfare systems. We have a teddy bot, which would be robots that take care of our kids. Uh, there's a doc bot. There's a sex bot. And what I do as a as a reporter, I report on these robots, what's happening in the present. But the whole story, each of these stories, is told from the future by a narrator who is not identified. It could be a man, a woman, a robot, who knows. Uh, But this narrator knows how things turn out in the future. And in fact, there are different scenarios. It gives me a kind of platform to be able to write about, you know, what might happen with automated warfare. And I'm actually, you know, creating these fictional stories around what the future might be, or sex bots or some of these other robotic systems. So that's basically what the book is about.
0: So in general, do you think that people are going to embrace (laughs) <laughs> or be forced to have interactions with bots of all sorts in their life and in the near future? Or what, what's the landscape look like?
1: Well, we actually already are. Um, you know, it's not like robots we see in sci-fi you know, that look a lot like us, like humans are kind of the, you know, the imaginary versions. I don't know, starting like with the Jetsons or, you know, even earlier than that. Um, I mean, if you think about it, every time you summon an Uber or I don't know, sign up for an Airbnb, you're actually interacting with with a robot. And by robot, by the way, I have a pretty broad definition, which includes pretty much any smart machine. And so, you know, Uber is basically, it's a mix of AI systems and humans. I mean, you you order an Uber, it goes into the AI system, the AI system finds a car that's close to you, it then informs the the driver to go pick you up, and when links back with, with you, having summoned it tell you the car's coming. I mean, we're already kind of working with, uh, uh, you know, certainly an AI system you know, right there. And, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this more and more. A lot of us don't even entirely realize it. That's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, hmm. it, in a way it's already here.
0: Well, do you find yourself interacting with, with robots quite a bit? I mean, I guess you can call your cell phone one. And like you said, you can call Uber's app one. And I don't know, like what? What kind of things jump out at you from having written this work and done the thinking involved in writing it?
1: Um, well, there's several there's several themes in the book, and there's themes I've been writing about for a long time, you know, previous books and articles. Um, it's it's really first of all first of all it's about technology being a somewhat neutral force. I mean, a lot of people think that technology is good just because it's technology. Um, you know, some people. Are, are fearful of technology, but it's really a reflection. Our technologies that we build are tools to help us as humans to do things better. And it kind of depends on what we mean by better. And, you know, Dean Kamen, the, the inventor who's, who's in the book, talks about technology amplifying what's good about humans and amplifying what's bad about humans. So you can get some really bad people using technology in really evil ways. Um, you can get good people using the same technology, you know, to help people. So ultimately, the book and my thinking around all this is really about the spectrum of human nature and how we've reached this critical inflection point, you know, throughout our long history where we're no longer like worrying about the spectrum of good versus evil with just humans. We're actually trying to figure out how we design all of that into machines. How do we design safeguards? How do we prevent biases um, being programmed into machines that, I mean, Uber is not yet, since, you know, it's not yet like interacting with us in a sort of empathetic way, or like maybe another human would. There's no real emotional. Sometimes you feel emotional when your Uber's late, but you know the, the system itself is it's not at an emotional level. But it's not long. It won't be long until we have robots and machines that are, you know, interacting with us at a, a level beyond just you know a kind of functional level. And who programs that? You know, who programs morality and ethics in, into these things?
0: maybe a better example is our interaction with, you know, Facebook and Google calling them machines. I mean, there's definitely a tremendous emotional component there and uh, they're having their way, their way with us, you know, data-wise and otherwise it seems, um, and emotion-wise. So I don't know if you've explored that, but I guess if you want to lump them in with robots, those are probably some of the biggest players.
1: No, absolutely. And you know, that's, that's another system where, you know, we are, you know, we, we, we love Facebook and it, it, in some ways, you know, we can communicate with people and keep up with people and see what everybody's up to. Um, but obviously we've seen what can go horribly wrong when, when there aren't, you know, what I would consider safeguards, proper safeguards built in. Um, you know, cause it turns out that there are really some bad players in the world who have taken that platform, which was set up, you know, to basically help us connect each other, um, and use it for their own, you have to try to manipulate us politically, or manipulate a political system. And Facebook itself, you know, turns out is using it to manipulate us to buy things, and you know, to be marketed to, and using our data. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example of where I I think that a business, and, it, and it, partly it's a business model that was created for Facebook, and it's you know, it's investors to make money by by you know. Prospecting data and then creating you know, marketing engines based on that, which in the beginning didn't seem that bad to people. I mean, versions of that have been done for a long time by the media and other places, um, but it's clearly gotten out of hand. And you know, you're you're starting to get even health data. It's, I just had a conversation with somebody about that. You know, they're they're actually starting to use neural data, for instance, um, you know, to try to get us to buy things. And I think we have to really step back and. See what it means to be interacting with that robot I mean Facebook itself the AI system um, it, it isn't interacting with us you know like with emotional programming but you certainly are seeing that um, if you don't have proper ethics or morality built into the programming um, it can it can really be abused and um, you know I I don't know I'm I'm getting more and more phones like just not look at it or, or turn it off sometimes
0: yeah no, i understand what, what so what do you see as the future of this interaction in the near term, meaning five years and then maybe longer term uh fifteen twenty years
1: well I think like I said I think we're at we're at a, a critical point, and you know we're sitting here you know, arguing about issues that are important um you know politically and as a society, but we aren't really talking about i think what might be in the long run you know at least as important um which is you know who, like I said, who programs these systems you know who should should there be regulation is is kind of government regulation the option here um they're uh, speaking with somebody from uh from Germany yesterday, and you know the Europeans are coming close, they probably will be regulating at least Google if not the other big tech companies fairly soon um it's anti competitive stuff, but they're also looking into privacy um So, you know, I think we need to really be seriously thinking about this right now because we're still in the early phases of these technologies. And there's still time to probably fix them or direct them towards um, being more on the good side of how we use technology. But, you know, as the years go by, it's going to be harder and harder to do that. And that's part of what happens in my book. And these future scenarios, by the way, they're written like short stories. They're, They're plots. And, you know, some of them... Turn out really well. Some of them turn out horribly for humans, and you know it's partly because I don't think we really know which way it's going to go right now. And we certainly you know scare ourselves to death while watching dystopic shows on Netflix and movies. And I mean, how many how many times can we you know can we have an apocalypse of machines or zombies or whatever? <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like we're sort of terrified of all that. Um, right. On the one hand, while on the other hand we we. You know, we all use our phones. We love, you know, we love these technologies, our computers. Um, so that's a talk I've been giving on why we love and fear technology and why we should probably we should probably pay attention to both aspects. We should pay attention to why we love te- these technologies. But there's also, you know, it's worth paying attention to why, why we're afraid of them, too, and, or why we're anxious about them.
0: Right. So what's the – I mean, do you see there's a dehumanization – because of all the robots, I mean, do you see it reducing person-to-person interactions, just changing the dynamic, all those things? I mean, you know, again, you know, what's the what's the overall feeling you've gotten from the work required to do this book?
1: Um, I don't, you know, again, I, I I don't think it has to go down a road of dehumanizing us. That um, certainly is one way it could go. Um, you know, there have been some interesting movies like. I don't know if you saw this pretty stupid movie, but it was called *Idiocracy*, and it had really just—it uh, was one of those movies that had a pretty good premise, but was sort of silly. But mm. this guy gets frozen, you know, in this military experiment in this, you know, kind of cryonics tube, and, and an accident happens, and he wakes up like hundreds of years in the future. And he's—he's he's kind of medium smart. He's not—he's actually not very bright, but when he wakes up everybody in the, on the world is like completely stupid and they don't even know and they have all these machines that run everything and they don't know anything about the machines and he turns out to be the smartest guy on the planet is a comedy mm. um, you know because everybody else has just let themselves become so moronic and yeah. you know I don't see that literally happening happening but um, you know, I think we have to we, we have to be careful about what we what we wish for in some ways I mean the more machines do for us, you know, the less we know how to do things for ourselves, not that that's inherently bad. but I just think we have to be, be aware of it, and you know, things like turning off your phone. My, you know, my good friend Tiffany Schlein has a new book out that just came out two days ago called 24-6, and she's talking about 24 hours, six days a week, and on the seventh day, you turn off all your technology, and you hang out with your family and your friends. And it's, it's already taking off. I mean, yeah, this book has, has already gotten a lot of attention even before it came out. Um, and she's in my book, by the way. Uh, she and her husband and daughter came up with one of the robots. And I, I didn't mention about the book that, um, each of the chapters has a, what I call a human collaborator or several collaborators. Um, and they, they helped me kind of put together what these robots are like. So, mm. you know, I interview people like Kevin Kelly, the futurist, um, Brian Green, a physicist, uh, Esther mm. Perel, who's a you know, relationship kind of sex, sex expert, sex bot. And Tiffany, um, who's a filmmaker and, and created the Webby's, if you remember, the Webby's Awards. Her book, 24-6, is actually part of a chapter called Memory Bot, which is about a robot in the future that helps us remember things, uh, including you know people that we love who have died. And you create mm. kind of versions of them that you can continue to talk to. But even that got into issues like, okay, let's say somebody had a really terrible thing happen to them. Do you want to remember that in your memory bot or do you delete it? Right. And what does that mean if you're just remembering the good things? Because you know, we're supposedly learning stronger. What
0: about about public versions of a person's persona and who would shape that? Who would, you know, let's say Einstein, what if you were able to somehow reconstruct, you know, a memory bot of him what would he be like? What would be included? What would be left out, et cetera? You know, and if it was used in no, exactly. teaching, you know, what would happen from there?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure where a lot of people that have had terrible things happen to them would love to just forget that or edit it out. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe if you had that technology, you know, that would be that would be fine. Um, but you know, even as a society, do we want to forget? Uh, you know, when things have gone horribly wrong, like you know, like I don't know. We, in that discussion I had with them, we even talked about the Holocaust. I mean, would you want to edit that out? I mean, I don't think so, because, you know, you, right. want, you don't want to ever happen again. Um, well, that's usually what makes people fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's usually what makes people yeah. fascinating. You know, heroes and all that always have character flaws. And, you know, everyone does. The people we know, everyone has flaws. So, I mean, to edit those out, it might actually uh, ruin your memories of a person because they may become boring to you. Let's say you may say, what-
1: well, I think everybody was boring." To, you know? yeah. yeah. You had a sanitized version of, of everybody's life. I mean, you know, again, there's certain horrible things that, you know, I guess people, you, you know, well, it gets down to a question, like, should people have control over their, their memory box? Should, should they decide mm-hmm. what's in there and what's not? And how does that affect other people? Um, <clears throat> You know. Anyway, you, know, you can kind of see where this goes, and
0: that, yeah.
1: those kind of questions come up across the different technologies. Um, and it would be
0: cool who's, if, yeah. um, if if you were able to capture, you know, let's say great thinkers in the fields of the field of physics, for instance, and make a memory bot of them, but also endow it with an AI that essentially is trained on their way of thinking, and then you could use a series of these. You know like ai-esque trained memory bots again great physicists to help you on projects you're working on or to help science on you know on a given area it's like being able to ask them you know what would einstein do what would so and so do just a thought
1: well actually there is a robot in the book called godbot and godbot is not like a religious god um uh, you know, it, some of my human collaborators for the book, I actually asked them what kind of robot they would like to meet in the future or be afraid of meeting. And uh, we can come back to that in a sec because that's a question that I'm asking a lot of people in salons and other things. And we go around the room. But I, I went to Brian Green, the physicist, um, and I asked him what kind of robot he would like to meet in the future or be afraid of meeting. And he started describing a robot kind of like what you were just saying. It would basically... The robot that would be able to explain to him the secrets of the universe, and it would take all of the theories that you know it takes a lifetime to learn. You know, Newtonian physics, uh, relativity, quantum uh, mechanics, you know, all the things that are so difficult for even the smartest people, physicists, to learn, and it would just sort of somehow impart that to him, so he could start, you know, learning about new things. But then beyond that, this this robot. Would actually know the secrets of the universe and could teach teach them how the universe began, how it ended, you know, all the things that he's a theoretical physicist, you know, all the things that he thinks about, and you know, as he says, he tries to express them through mathematical equations, which which he says is fun, but it's inexact. And so, as we got talking, we realized if you had a robot that could explain how the universe began and ended and everything in between, it would basically be like a godlike figure. I mean, you know, again, not a religious god, but the kind of god that you know, knows how things work. um And if you could impart that to humans, I don't know, would time time cease to exist? Would that dimension, you know, time even? And so we kind of had some fun in the future. People can live in all different times. And you travel in, in these ships called timeliners. And you move around in space and time. And there's some people that don't like that. They actually like linear time. So, you know, they can certainly live that way if they want to. Anyway, that's the kind of thing we we just had so much fun. I mean, sitting there talking to Brian Green for 90 minutes about this stuff was pretty mind blowing. Yeah, that's
0: awesome. That's awesome. I guess you know yeah. I don't know. I uh, I guess I have a curiosity for sure everyone knows. How about the uh, the the sex spot part? What uh, interesting issues would be there? You know, if your if you if your spouse is with a sex spot, are they cheating on you? You know, what kind of dynamics? Do you <laughs> find when you to It that? took
1: you long enough to get to the sex spot. Um, anyway, no, that's always <laughs> funny. Uh, everybody always asks about sex, yeah. In fact, the chapter is called "Sex," and then in parentheses, "Intimacy Bot." And I, I put "Intimacy" in there at the request of of the human, my human collaborators that I talked to. Um, and these were three women, sex therapists and kind of relationship therapists, like Esther Perel, and a couple of other amazing women who, they they said right away that and yeah, and one of them, uh Briannie Cole, is actually kind of an expert on the technology of sex I mean that's something she covers you know in her practice and in her podcasts and I guess she has a satellite show so she she's really she's really up on you know sex robots and things and first of all there aren't really sex robots i mean there are dolls that look like, you know, that look like humans, and some of them are outfitted with a i to be able to talk they can kind of talk to you tell you how great you are and it's almost all guys that buy them Um, but the way that these sex bots are marketed it's all about companionship and loneliness and one of the taglines of of the biggest sex bot company is called real botics Um, they they market using the term be the first to never be lonely again so that tells you something about what's really going on with sex bots it's less about sex and a lot more about intimacy and you know, just being with, you know, can't be with a real human or you're scared of that or whatever, um, you know, I guess a machine. And there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of people that buy these machines to have somebody to talk to that tells them how great they are all the time. And mm. it's, it's not that different. An extension of that, which my, you know, my collaborators pointed out very quickly, that's more familiar with, to people who wouldn't buy a sex bot, is our phones. I mean, we, we have an intimate relationship, most of us, with our phones. And, you know, we use it for all kinds of things, including kind of a, a surrogate for other humans. And, you know, we check Facebook. When we got a human sitting right next to us, we could be talking to them. So it's true. Yeah. Sort of interesting issues. Yeah.
0: Well, my, you know, my, my wife has said that she thinks sometimes men only want food and sex. So maybe that's why men <laughs> like eat, uh, these sex spots so much. You know, I think there's more to it. Yeah. And, you know, encouragement. Well, yeah. But, uh, you know.
1: Unfortunately, yeah, we're probably not. Yeah, we probably really are Are about that you know, that complicated. But, um, but, yeah, in fact, you know, these, these uh, relationship therapists all talk about how many of their clients are women trying to understand why they're men would rather like, you know, play a video game than hang out with them. And, you know, we can sort of chuckle at that a little bit, but it's actually, it, especially uh, there's a lot of statistics on you know, millennials are the first generation that have really grown up with these machines, and the statistics are not looking good for relationships and, you know, marriage and having kids. Um, I think there are a lot of of other factors probably playing in there, but um, certainly some of it has to do with, you know, spending two or three or four hours a day on on your phone. Um, You know, you're not not having, you know, as much time to have intimate relationships.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and then it's hard to get uh, certain people to look up. They're constantly looking at their phone and, yeah. You know, but, yeah, it's a whole societal issue. Um, yeah, it's huge. Any other areas of, uh, you know, robot interaction that you didn't even know existed or really surprised you or changed your view big time? Now, that's
1: a great question because there, there certainly were a, a number of them. Um, even in my own field in journalism, I had no idea how pervasive AI systems are at like major newspapers. And it probably started with the Washington Post in the 2016 Rio Olympics where they introduced an AI system that basically was programmed with a lot of formulaic sports stories. And rather than having a human writing these stories, they actually had an AI and then they would just fill in the, the blanks. You know what, whatever sport it was, and what the score was, and they even the the AI was able to choose from different sort of metaphors and um, phrases, and it's hard to tell the difference. I mean, these are you know these are pretty formulaic, even when humans write them. They're really basic stories. And then since then, you know, most Wall Street Journal and New York Times, they all have AI systems, Um, and they use it for financial stories. You know. um, kind of basic political stories, like who won what election, um, and then sports, and that was surprising to me, although in some ways it's not, because, again, those are not, I mean, as a human and a former, yeah, you know, as a journalist, we formerly, you know, even had to write some of that stuff. I mean, that's really brain dead kind of writing for a human, so maybe it's fine that machines do that. Uh, I just, as a journalist, want to know where it stops, so, you know, when, when are they coming after me? and.
0: We haven't yeah, even no, really I talked understand. about that,
1: that yet. Yeah, the whole idea of robots replacing humans in jobs. There is a chapter called the blankety-blank robot that stole my job. And in that future scenario, every single human on Earth has had their job taken by a robot, including uh, Larry Page and um, you know Jeff Bezos. They, they, they got fired by their own algorithms. And so we have full yeah. unemployment. And we, you know, obviously it's tongue in cheek, but we, and then we decide, hey, wait, maybe this was such a good idea to automate everything. And so in that scenario, these, these really smart entrepreneurs that are suddenly out of work, they they spend their time trying to figure out how to bring humans back into the equation, which they realize they should have done in the first place. Cool. So
0: so with the, you know, what are your thoughts on the future of automation? Do you think that uh, it's going to be expansive or do you think it's really just going to change the nature of work?
1: Well again I mean it, we've been running we've been kind of running experiments on this as humans for a really long time The I mean, automation has been around really since the industrial revolution started and in the past the you know when we invented the new technology and, and learned how to automate or simplify uh, certain processes like manufacturing um, we that usually came with a whole slew of new jobs i mean the invention of the internal combustion engine in cars created a whole new industries that nobody ever would have dreamed of like building roads and building bridges and um, you know on you know, gas stations and the energy sector and i mean massive you know massively c- created jobs as well as replacing all the people that used to take care of horses um, so that's kind of kept us on the right side of that equation for quite a long time but Again, the difference right now is there's so much happening at the same time. I mean, we're automating broad swaths of every, every industry, every field. You know, all all aspects of society are being automated. I would argue in a fairly, you know, well thoughtless way. I mean, you know, it's it's being driven a lot by private companies that have shareholders. And and you, you know, if you fire a thousand humans and eliminate their salaries and benefits. um the stock price goes up, you know, replace them with, with robots. And that may make sense for that company and for the shareholders, but um, it's not a real good incentive to, you know, for society. You should probably think it out a little bit more. And that's about to happen with driverless cars. And there is a chapter about that, too. Um, you know, should we just simply replace hundreds of millions of professional drivers around the world? Um, right. You know, what, what's going to happen to them? Will there be, you know, will there be jobs for them? And right now, a lot of them are already. Now a lot of Uber and Lyft drivers are actually people that have been displaced from other industries. Mm, so you true. take that away. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I mean, again, just to underscore the point, I think we have to do something we're not very good at as humans, which is we, we need to really think this out. Like, is it a good idea to have, you know, driverless cars take over everything, or is there a role for humans? I would argue that there is. I mean, you could create much safer cars. And humans, you know, could drive them in, like, certain areas, like cities, which, and, you know, right now the AI systems can't always pick up on all the nuances, you know, and kind of complicated, you know, driving through complicated, um you know, streets with a lot of things going on. But they're great for long-haul stuff, you know, set them loose on the highways, and gotcha. that, that will displace, lots, you know, some drivers. But anyway, it's just, you know, we think more... Like human plus human plus robots rather than just robots, I think we'll be a lot happier.
0: So uh I don't know, this is maybe really a tough question, but now that you've done so many books in so many areas and learned all you know, I mean all kinds of things, like I don't know, how do you feel different as a person having tried and learned and gone deep into all these subjects, all these topics? Is it you know, has it changed the way you live or think or what you do?
1: Um, yeah, it really has. I mean, you know, i I'm lucky as a you know person that's probably way too curious about everything that you know i I've been able to as a journalist hang out with uh inventors and creators and scientists and engineers i'm incredibly lucky um you know with that um, but i don't know i mean um I think in some ways, especially doing this last project i am better understanding the role of Kind of people to people relationships. And I'm always somebody that kind of thinks in big issues like global warming, you know, let's, let's deal with it at a global level. And that has to be done. But I think that there's also a role for, you know, just individual, individuals getting together and, um, just, you know, being connected as humans. And I think, you know, in a funny way, technology might be pushing us back towards that. Like, you know, with Tiffany Schlein's book taking a day off and it's certainly making us think about it more I don't know if we're actually yeah. gonna do anything about it but um, you know for me personally I think it's made me think more about that you know enjoy the people yeah. in my life you know the actual humans <laughs> and you know, use the machines to make you know make my life easier or to do the things I need to do but not at the expense of
0: human relationships yeah, that makes sense so um, <clears throat> do you have your next book Cooking in your head, or is it too soon?
1: Um, well, weirdly enough, I'm almost done with another book.
0: Uh, uh, it's
1: been insane to be working on two, two books at the same time, but uh, yeah, this one it's a it's back in my more my life science biology area, and it's about the microbiome of the planet. What I mean? mean by that is there are a there are five million trillion trillion microbes, and mostly bacteria that connect all life on earth. They're everywhere where they connect us with, you know, the air and the water and the soil and they connect, connect us with each other. And it's almost like there's a life force on the planet. And I'm working with a famous scientist named Craig Venter, who, you know, is on the leading edge of studying what's called environmental micro, you know, environmental microbiology. Um, but there's a cautionary part of this too, which is that we are, um, you know, while we're, we know about climate change. We're also affecting the microbiome of the planet. This kind of life force—it's it's we're changing it. We're—and it's not being changed in a good way for us.
0: So, Interesting. Well, that's coming soon. what's that doing. book going to be called?
1: Um, well, even as we're talking here, I got an email from my agent that uh, they're, they're talking about setting a pub date. It'll probably be next spring or summer. Um, okay. I don't know. I'm fooling around with titles right now. I hesitate to tell you that it's going to be something around like the ind- indispensable life of earth's smallest creatures, something like that.
0: Mm. Gotcha. So, right. and then, yeah, what's going on? Well, very okay. good. Well, it's been a, it's been a good talk. I mean, it, it, it's funny, I guess you're like, I don't know if I talked to you about different subjects, it dude, would, it would be like talking to different people because you've been through so many <laughs> things, which is cool. And I, I find people that are, you know, polymaths or renaissance people i guess i call them are, are like that so uh, you know it's been a good call so um i guess all your no, books are you. on amazon and kindle and all the all the great places to get them
1: yep and i have a website david com and it's david and then e-w-i-n-g is my middle name and then duncan.com and it's got books and articles and research projects and you know i the crazy things when I was younger, like bicycle around the world. So it's got a lot of stuff on that. That was the first book um, of oh. adventure travel. stuff. So. so yeah, so check it out.
0: All right, excellent. Well, David, it's been good having you. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care. You're listening to the future tech health podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues.